Oh, I guess I have to say something. Just noticing the, <laughs> the sunset. And somehow I think that more important in my Dharma talk, but also what I'd like to talk about tonight is uh, the awakened heart. And I think the first change, significant change, as a, we take on a spiritual practice sin, with sincerity, perhaps the first real change we can see in ourselves is an, um, an honest commitment to do no harm. Just the desire to harm, to hurt, intentionally, doesn't seem to arise. And I think that is the beginning of the awakening of the heart. It may take some time as we go in and out of retreat or our daily practice and the same configuration of our conditioning meets again and again the obstacles of resistance and we often lead with the same manipulative responses to that over and over. And then something, somehow the, the coins fall into the coin box. And suddenly we just aren't given to doing that anymore. To intentionally harm. And I'd like to uh, just take this talk sort of take it back to the end of the last talk about task-centered meditation and heart-centered meditation. Because I left us with the end of tasking, with the end of the journey of what the will can do, of what the projection of distancing ourselves from the problem, the limitation of that. And, And when we see the limitation of that, Uh, we begin to acknowledge that the real crisis is the willingness to be present with ourselves uh, through all of its different configurations and turbulence. Really be with ourselves. Unconditionally being with ourselves. Up until that, it was a conditionality to our willingness. And we do it bemoaning the fact that that's what the instructions say we should do. And then I'd like to tie in Yanai's talk last night about the fact that when we do that, we are flooded with the information of transition, of change. It's all of a sudden so apparent why we have been running from this moment when we actually embrace it. There's nothing here much to embrace. We grasp at something and it slides through our fingers. And so how do we get still? How do we 
become quiet with all of that going on? Well, the simple answer to that is we don't. And as long as we try or continue to effort ourselves in that direction, stillness is a very distant reference for us. But something else is still. The birds call. Listen to it. Or not. (laughs) It's not what is heard, it's that we can hear. There's the stillness. It's not the call that's still. It's awareness itself. The heart can never open while it's on a journey. But the moment it's willing to rest with a simple input, simple experience of the moment, it's at rest, regardless of the fact that the content is not. Something like the space in this room. Many of you came walking in and out, bringing things, but the space did not move. The space did not move. And we're so identified with the manipulation of the content, me getting for a good seat, comfortable, bring my right pillow, duh. that we miss the fact of what it is that's encompassing us, the space. The space never moves. You can't color it. You can't confine it. You can't manipulate it. You can't distance yourself from it. You can pretend not to be in this room, but the space never moves. And when we fall into the fact of that, we're in the realm of the heart. That's it. That's it. And I think the word that for me represents that is the word love. And we access love through sensitivity. The willingness to see. Here's what the Buddha said. I love this quote. It is this way we must train ourselves, by liberation of self through love. We will develop love, we will practice love, we will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. And the reason I am so particular to that quote is that his personality comes out. This is what we're going to do. We are not going to move from this. We are going to stand upon it. This is it. This is what we, this whole practice is about. 
That's it. No compromise from it at all. And we're going to set it going. And that's it. So the word sensitivity has a compelling meaning for me, which I hope to convey tonight. Although it is kind of encased in a kind of uh, 60-ish backlash where we were all supposed to be sensitive together and sensitivity meant often to our to the males a giving away of their masculinity in some weird way but this sensitivity is a human condition it's not gender specific and what i mean by sensitivity is the undefended heart bearing of the heart the bearing of the heart And any time we bear our heart, we're vulnerable. There's a vulnerability to it. And we don't, this culture in particular, doesn't sit well in vulnerability. We like to retaliate. We like to be the aggressor. We like to have things known to us and be in control, be the influence, be under allow the situation to be under influence. Vulnerability uh, feels too raw to us. And we mistrust it. We mistrust that rawness. And so we think ourselves away from the vulnerability. We put a no man's land between ourselves and being vulnerable. And so we find our heart protected, defended, encased and yet there is no other way what we most fear in an undefended heart is that we will be overwhelmed in that defenselessness we know in the past that if we have ever allowed ourselves the moment of true intimacy that in that rawness of the experience of that We can be manipulated and hurt within that experience. And so through that scarring, we have pulled back into very safe territory where we have essentially said we're not trusting anymore. And we come to Buddhism. Buddhism feels like a protection of armor to some of us. It's like a a tradition steeped in form, methodology, we put this on as a coat, as a, another thing to wear, another task to do, another image to have, another practice to accomplish. And really, all of, the, all of Buddhism, all of its methods, all of its techniques, all of its philosophy is meant to eliminate that protection to expose ourselves once more to the unnatural awakened heart. I remember I was at a retreat uh, last summer 
in North Carolina. And it was uh, in late July, and all the daddy long legs, which are spiders with long legs, uh, were hatching. And so there were hundreds all over the ground. And I'm not a particularly... Um, I'm not particularly fond of spiders, but I'm not... This is one spider that I feel completely comfortable with. So I was sitting there uh, in my sandals without any socks, just sitting on a bench, and one of the daddy long legs crawled up to my foot and reached out with his two antennae to see probably whether the foot was edible reaching out and touching my foot with these long antennae. And I was just watching it, and I closed my eyes and said, okay, let me just feel this contact with another species. And if I cut to the subtlest degree, I could feel the stroke of the antennae. And I thought, oh, this is how the world breathes in. Oh, this is how the world breathes out. That moment of unprotected intimacy. How many of us are willing to do that in our practice? The quiet ways that emotions affect us. How many of us are willing to open to those subtle influences that emotions have on us? The subtle ways we pull back or contract around something or the fear response we have, the, su- the subtle judgments that intercede in our listening, in our opinions, in our observations, the wisp of competing motivations in our actions. If there's a sign of progress in meditation, it is the willingness to pick up more and more subtlety in one's practice the willingness to listen, to attune oneself to the quiet and subtle play of life that is around us and in us and through us. An old friend of mine, very old doctor, told me a story one time where in his earlier days he was walking through a hospital corridors And in the basement of his hospital, back in the 1950s, he would pass a woman in an iron lung. Back then, sometimes when you had polio, you lost the ability to breathe on your own, so they put you in these huge tubes that were breathing tubes, but you just had to stay there for their whole life. They breathed for you. So he would pass this woman again and again, not really noticing her, Uh, on his daily movements through the corridor. But one day he stopped, and he just happened to look down at the chart and noticed that she had been in an iron lung for 32 years. And he just stopped. And he said it came blurting out of his mouth. Not a very professional thing to do, but he said to her, what keeps you What keeps you alive? What keeps you moving? What keeps you motivated to be alive? And she said, you see the window right above your head there and there was a little vent window. 
that was just cracked open. She said, sometimes the orderly leaves that window open and a breeze comes in and touches my cheek. And she says, that is why I live. I wonder how many of us have that subtlety of contact with life, that it touches our hearts so deeply. The little things. Or have we encased it so much in the gross forms of intensity, of noise, that we are no longer able to access that degree of caring, that degree of being affected, So that there's nothing between ourselves and life. Nothing. We place nothing between ourselves. See, usually we place thought between ourselves and life. Thought gives it a wasteland where I have something to consider. The sense data comes in, and I don't want to be raw and vulnerable to that sense data, so I put a wasteland between myself and the data. The consideration of what that data is about, or what it will do to me, or what... I need to act upon it or anything so that I have a a way of forming some kind of relationship with it in my thought so then I can act from my thought and consideration but not right up against it. That means I'm too raw, I'm too exposed. I have nothing to guard against, nothing to protect me. And again, it's that fear of vulnerability. When there is silence, you may have noticed that in your practice, every once in a while your mind will be perhaps quiet. And the whole level of stillness will drop a notch. And suddenly the senses are awake. vibrant, alive. The wasteland has been crossed, if ever so temporarily. And there, with the crossing of that, the senses pick up. They're, they become acutely affected. Which means what? Which means that we've come into our aliveness. We're no longer blocking our aliveness with assurance. That is the realm of the heart, where there's no mental interference. My wife set the second half of the six-month course this last year, and she came home and I know they teach metta during that time. And I said, um, did you do a lot of metta? And she said, oh, I did a lot of metta. And I said, uh, so who was your friend? <laughs> she said, my dearest friend that I came up very easily and was immediately uh, open-hearted to was Willow the cat. That's our cat. 
And somewhat taken back, I said, well, what about me? (laughs) And she said, "Uh, uh, you were a little more difficult. (laughs) No mental interference. Wherever there's mental interference, the heart closes down. That's why we have such trouble with people. Because we keep each other disadvantaged. It's, we, it's, it's dawned on me once that we either all have to grow together or nobody's going to grow at all. Because we're each other's worst enemies. And so we do have to all do this together. We all have to do this together. We have to pitch in. That's why Sangha is so important. Because your judgments, you know, you have to have an extraordinarily courageous mind to withstand somebody's judgment and not to cave into their particular needs for you, for me. And how many of us can withstand somebody's negation, dismissal, closes down the heart immediately. You just feel terrible because it throws us on our worst pain of self-denial. And especially, see, nobody wants us out of control here. Nobody wants us to move into the heart if they're not in the heart. If you move into the heart and they're not in the heart, it creates enormous self-doubt in the person who's left behind. So they will try everything, not intentionally, not maliciously, but they will try everything to get you back into a position that they recognize you for. And so they'll bring out their heavy artillery. They know how to do that, especially your family. They know how to pin you. And so we, there's so the enormous res, resilience of the heart. You see how resilient it has to be. It casts... We think it's so fragile, but it has enormous resilience. Resilience in the sense of wisdom. We don't just go rush in, pull our chest open like a superwoman or man and say, okay, I'm raw now. We meet that rawness with wisdom, with the ability to hold life in whatever forms or expressions it may be manifesting whatever pain it may be producing, whatever challenges might be occurring. And then the heart is not some wimpy little thing like a jellyfish. It holds the human condition within it. So there are a continuum. There's a continuum of how it is that we protect ourselves from the human heart. The continuum of sensitivity to spiritual, for spiritual seekers. And all of us are somewhere on this continuum. And I'd like just to talk about the two outer points of the continuum. And you can see through my descriptions where you fit on this continuum and which edge you're closer to. 
but few of us are at the extremes. So I will talk about the extremes, but I'm not. It's not that. It's they're not usually. Uh, none of us are usually in those particular positions. So the first extreme is the guarded heart. Now the guarded heart is so mistrustful that it will let nothing come in. So the chest is protected completely. And it is so defensive that it will let nothing out. So the back is closed as well. So the front and the back is closed. What comes in is guarded by thick iron walls and what is in the back, the letting go, the releasing is just as tight and tense. And often such a person has had a very difficult history of pain and abuse. They would like nothing better, better than to escape their skin. And often spiritual practice for them is a journey out of themselves, anywhere but where I live. A strong need to protect the self-image because the self-image is the, is the encasement of the heart. And so everything is felt through the image and protected from the image and by the image. So a very strong sense of who they are and what they usually do or their opinions about life. And that, of course, allows a lot of hiding space back in there. They let their image do their talking. They let their conditioning do their talking. And, of course, that sense of no trust, not trusting life. And quite likely the scars are so deep from childhood memories that they're about to step out of that again. They don't often know how to soften, and metta is particularly difficult. And as soon as you say we're going to do metta, they start squirming. You can see them wiggle, restless, or they won't come at all. So that's that extreme. Then there is the other extreme. And that's the person who is too raw and vulnerable and is overwhelmed by all the experience that comes in. Their front is wide open, which means they're letting everything in, but their back, their ability to release and let go of what comes in, is closed. You feel them, see the metaphor I'm using? And the reason it's closed is that everything that comes in has to do with them. If they see a yogi who is sitting next to them and for some reason that yogi gets up and moves to a different spot, it's because they they didn't like them. It was a direct act against them. If somebody is sitting at the table and moves a little bit, oh, I did something wrong, I've got to eat quieter, or everything is interpreted in terms of personal information. And they're wide open. Emotions overwhelm. 
And everything, of course, is taken much too personally because it's all about me. It's all about me. Everything is about me. So that's the extremes. And now where's the middle ground? Where is the practitioner, the meditator? Non-attached sensitivity is the middle way. Where the chest is open, we allow everything in. And the back is open, we allow everything to release itself. Everything comes in. There's no protection whatsoever. None. The definition of freedom is non-resistance to life. That means chest wide open. There's just no way around it. But the back is also open, and so that's the salvation. Burnout is because one, the front is open and the back is closed. We romanticize what we're doing. What we're doing is more important than who we're serving. But to the practitioner, to the yogi, nothing is screened. And so there's complete harmony and no reactivity because it's not about me. It's only reaction because we're personalizing the information. But if the information isn't personalized, it leaves, it goes. Just as Jan and I was speaking about last night, it doesn't stay. It only stays if the back is closed. And the mind, we have to understand how the mind, the mind works to close down the front or the back. The mind creates the white noise of thought to block the senses from natural wakefulness. That's what the purpose of much of our thinking is. Is to keep us ratcheted down, protected from what it is that's coming in. And we keep this kind of buzz of white noise of thought. We're not trying to think, but that's the mind's protective shield. It's the guardall of our spirit. Ajahn Buddhadasa, a teacher of mine for three years in Thailand, used to sit out in his, just outside of his kuti, he wouldn't be practicing, he would just be hanging out. And I'd be back doing my walking for hours, and I'd look over at him down, and he'd be just sitting there hanging out with roosters and dogs and stuff. And I didn't think he was doing it. I thought he was just in his old age being lazy. And when I would ask him what he was doing, he said, natural awareness, natural awareness. Mm-hmm. Natural. <laughs> Taking me years to understand that. Uh, 
I was working to overcome. He was sitting in the middle of his heart. You know, all the qualities we most long for. I don't know. I mean, I could list them, but what qualities do you most long for spiritually? Are present when we're not protected. Isn't that interesting? The things we most long for are just on the other side of that which we are resisting. And we're resisting it because we don't believe that they're there. We believe that they're within our influence, within our control, within our hard work. And so instead of letting go of the work and enjoying the fruit, we continue to work and block the fruit. The story of the me, the sense of I, creates that blockage, the story. We constantly live that story, which filters and blocks and protects us. It creates a posture in relationship to everything that's arising. I know who I am. When we know who we are, we're posturing. We only let a certain amount of information that resonates with who we are in. Everything else is blocked. Anything threatening the story is reflected back. And so we rehearse the story of the me over and over again as a way to protect ourselves from the rawness of life if we ever let the story go. We fear that if life comes too close, I will lose my boundaries, my self-definition. And we will. It's absolutely true. We will lose our boundaries. We will lose our self-definition. Absolutely true. And what is that composed of? My ideas. So we lose our ideas. That's what we lose. We don't lose anything else. We don't lose the ability of the heart to feel love. We don't lose the ability of the heart to care or be compassionate or vital or alive or being sensitive or awake. We only lose the idea. That's it. All of this is about losing the idea. That's it. And look what we have to go through to release ourselves from an idea. So I produce the story to protect myself from being affected by, in other words, I defend the idea from any data which may contradict it. And so I put a space between myself and the data that's coming in so that I can allow it to filter within my idea of me. 
Oh, I remember that experience. Oh, I've seen a sunset like that before. I've heard birds like that. That's a robin. You see? And we put this space between ourselves and the rawness of life because we also want to determine whether we want it or not. We have to step back from it to decide whether we want it or whether we fear it, whether it's going to overload us, whether it's not going or whether we, this is something we want. So we have to pull back and read about life rather than be it. And it's all about getting over that idea all about getting over the idea. That's it. That's what it's about. (laughs) And the story, when the story is playing, the heart can't be sensitive because I can't be present to life when the story is playing because I'm back considering life. And therefore I can't be present to it. To be present, the story can't be there. I worked in hospice care with a nine-year-old girl who was dying of cystic fibrosis. And her mother and father were getting a divorce up from her mother's um, decision. And the little girl knew this. And so we were standing at her bed while she was craning her neck to breathe in enough air so that she could breathe. And she waved us all out of the room. And we were in the hospital. She waved us all out of the room. So we all went out of the room. And I thought, oh, she wants to be alone while she dies. So I was telling the family, preparing them for this. What she was really doing was somehow she got out of bed. She went over to her desk. She made a big heart in an I love you poster for her father. She called us back in and gave that to him because she knew he was hurting, not only from the divorce, but also, of course, from her being sick. Now, when, the, when you're sick, the idea of you is very strong. The idea of us is very strong. And when the heart can move beyond its own inward reflection, and see the pain of another, in that condition, that is a quiet, open heart. Nine years old. So there are two qualities of sensitivity. One is the ability to openly receive, to let it in not to confuse our story with what is being received. Just to know the difference. You see, you don't have to end the story. You just don't believe it. That's really a revelation, because if you think you have to end the story, 
It will perpetuate itself through your efforts to end it. But at some point, you just don't believe it. And then you can really receive life. To know the difference between what is heard and what I think about what is heard. To know the difference between what is heard and what I bring to what is heard. Let me read a story that... I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze and touch each other so generously, greedily? The young woman speaks first. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in the encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I so close I can see that he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss will still work. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, I hold my breath and let the wonder in. It's not um, manufactured. It's not done with pretension. the movement of caring. It has its movement. And that's what waits for us on the other side of our resistance. How can that be so terrible? We envision the loss of the sense of me as devastating. I won't be able to, it will be a, I can't find a, I won't have a, what we will have is an open heart. but then we have to let it go once it comes in. It's not to romanticize it and to hold it beyond its duration. It's to let it come in and let it go. Let it go. 
It's not about me. It's not about me. When the story isn't running, the letting go is there. It's life moving and folding into life. Ever an ending journey of the waterfall A good sentence to tell ourselves to begin the process of opening our hearts is to add nothing to this experience. Add nothing to this. And when we do so, we will find enormous sense of not only relief, but grief because we will see how we have denied ourselves from the feast we so yearn to have. Add nothing to this. And everything exists and is. In the journey of the heart, then, How could it be any further away than that? Can we sit for a minute or two? She knows a cashier who blushes and lets her use her food stamps to buy tulip bulbs and rose bushes. We smile each morning as I pass her, her hand always merry to some stick or hoe or rake. One morning I shout, I'm not skinny like you, so I've got to run two miles each day. She begs me closer, whispers to my flesh, all you need, honey, is to be on welfare and love the roses. Thank you for allowing me to share.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.